Hello everyone and welcome back to Sightless Fun, a podcast about board game accessibility for people who are blind and visually impaired. I am your host Ertai Shashko and joining me today, all the way from Australia, is Richard Kenning. Richard will be talking to you about teaching board games, modern board games to the elderly and we will also be talking about the accessibility problems they struggle with. Welcome to the show Richard, how's it going down under? Uh, it's doing quite well. We've had some bad storms, but apart from that, things are doing quite well. Oh, that's that's great. So, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? What's your background? What do you do for a living? What do I do for a living? I'm an IT specialist. I'm working for a university down here, but um, and I've worked in IT my whole life. Um, I'm in Melbourne, Australia, and I've... Um, been involved in gaming for my whole life. Um, I've been playing um, board games and role-playing games for over 40 years. Oh, awesome. So you're you're a veteran. I mean, I'm much younger than you. I mean, I'm not as old as the time that you've been playing board games. So, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, um, about 20 years ago, I, I got a um, Atlas game pub- Games published um, a, a role-playing book um, with some of my work in it um, for Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of writing oh, for conventions great. around Australia. I've done a lot of work. Awesome. And how long have you been involved with teaching the elderly? Like, what made you interested in this? this was it your family or... Did you like start teaching your parents or some friends' parents or perhaps grandparents? No, it started with my parents. So my parents got me into board gaming when I was a kid and um, my father in particular. And I've always been a gamer and I kind of stopped gaming with them when we, um, we, we never really separated, but we, we stopped hanging out together as much when, you know, I was in my thirties. Um, and, a few years ago, um, after my grandparents died, um, my my father started getting a bit a bit unwell, and he started having problems with his heart, and he's also started having concentration problems. And what I wanted to do is start spending more time with him, and I was heavy into board games, and I wanted to try and uplift his concentration and sort of get the mm. connection that I had with my father that we used to have years ago. So I started taking around some simple board games. And over a period of just a few months, just going around a couple of times a week and playing board games, his concentration improved and his ability to focus on things improved. Um, and it really lifted his capability to do things. He was going from being confused a lot to just being normal, which for a while his doctors wasn't sure was going to happen. Um, and on a, over a couple of years, he was playing heavy Euros. Um, we were playing quite heavy games wow. you know, through the ages and, and games like that were, were games we were playing. Um, we were playing Pandemic Legacy Season 1 when it came out. Um, and his doctors were surprised that he, he turned around. Um, so that's been an amazing thing. And just continuing that journey with my parents is the main thing I've done with the elderly. But I've done a lot of gaming with other elderly people, both through my parents, through other family members, and the fact that, you know, I'm known to, um, game with the elderly as well. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's fantastic and pretty impressive. And does he have a favorite game? 
I think his favourite game is Castles of Burgundy. Um, early, I think it was 2017, I bought them a copy of Castles of Burgundy as something that they could play together because it was a highly rated um, two-player game. Uh, I played, yeah. it, I'd played it a couple of times um, and thought that, you know, if I took, spent you know, a couple of sessions teaching them in detail and making sure that they understood it, they could play it together. And over the last, what is it, nearly two years now, they've probably played it 500 times. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, wow. Well, they're both retired, so, you know, they... They're, <laughs> not much else to do. Well, it's not that they don't have much else to do, but they can get up in the morning, they can set up a game of Castles and Burgundy and play it for an hour, and then they do their stuff around the house, and then in the afternoon they'll play another game, and, you know, they, they yeah. just keep playing it. Um, so, yeah, and, and just... Every time I go around, which I try and do a couple of times a week, they're talking about, you know, how they've tried different boards. I've bought them all the expansions of the different boards and the different cards and the different tiles. And they just keep talking about how they've tried this and the different scores they get and who does better. And they just love it. Um, I've bought them a whole heap of other games and they do play other things as well. But I think that's their favorite, particularly my father's. Oh, that's that's great. I've, I've been looking into Castles of Burgundy myself. I saw it recommended on Reddit. It was a guy who had a blind girlfriend, if I'm not mistaken, and they had met Raudo, if you know the YouTuber that does board game reviews. And they had asked him like, if there was one game to recommend for a blind person, and he had said uh, like a more advanced game, not a gateway game, and he had said Castles of Burgundy for sure. So, um, my father was able to play it while he was legally blind. Um, he is no longer legally blind. Um, I was going to go into that later, but, um, yeah, he was, that was a game he was able to play if he took the extra time. Mm, awesome. So, could you describe your process? Like, do you have any special techniques when teaching board games to the elderly? Um, I, <laughs> I do, and the biggest one, I suppose, is taking extra time, um, being very, very patient and taking the time to explain, including making sure that when you're explaining something that they have both seen and understood it. Um, so normally if I'm teaching a game um, to just normal gamers and <laughs> There's no such thing as a normal gamer. We're, we're all different. But if I'm just teaching at a convention or something like that, say a game is going to take me five to ten minutes, I will normally budget at least twice that if I'm teaching elderly gamers. And that's because of the different challenges that they face. There's always vision problems. There is always um, hearing problems. There are um, concentration issues. That doesn't mean that they're not capable of understanding, it means that they, um, when you explain something, they won't connect the dots as quickly, but they will eventually connect the dots. They will be able to make those connections um, and be very, very good when they do. Um, it's just that they don't get it as quickly. Um, it's just the standard um, degenerative stuff that you see with you know, elderly people all the time. Um, similarly, right. normally when you're teaching a game, you will give the components to people and ask them to help set, set up the game. That's harder to do with elderly people because the dexterity problems and shuffling cards is something that they have trouble with. So when I'm teaching, I'm doing a lot more hands-on demonstrating, a bit more like a tutorial, um, and that all takes extra time. Um, 
The next thing I do a lot more when I'm teaching the elderly is I will ask feedback questions. So normally when I'm teaching, again, I'm going to use it in a convention or an event, I will provide information about you know the mechanics of the game and just wait for feedback. People will interrupt a lot more if, they, if I haven't been clear. I'm not sure if it's a, an upbringing or a societal polite thing or something, but I've found that the elderly, if they don't understand something, will just stay quiet. Um, so uh, I've, yeah. I've found that I have to actually sit there and pay attention and actually, while I'm teaching, watch them as well a lot more for clues that they may not have understood and... Um, ask, did that make sense? Is, do you need me to explain it in a different way? Um, particularly if I'm sort of getting any negative feedback. And sometimes that negative feedback is just them trying to process it and not taking it in as quickly. Um, so, and often I'll just read it wrong. Often they have got it and I'm asking for, you know, <laughs> for a feedback a lot that they don't need to provide. Um, but asking those questions more often than not is the right thing to do. Um, providing examples is something you do when you um, teach um, all the time if you can. You definitely want to do that, particularly if they're vision impaired or hearing impaired in any way. Um, hearing impaired is a big one because if they've got hearing aids, um, one of the things that is always awkward is um, if someone has any hearing impairment and they're using a hearing aid, the hearing aid is really bad at filtering out background noise. They get everything at the same level. So with human, yeah, with human hearing, you that you can filter out a conversation and you can focus on one person talking. If you've got a hearing aid, any other noise comes through at the same level and they can't do that filtering, so they can't filter the teacher. So you need to remove distraction. Um, so if someone's on their phone at the table or if someone else is talking at the next table or anything like that, or you know there's a radio on or something, they're not going to get the information well. So you need to remove distraction and, and do all of that sort of stuff. Um, that's that's key to making sure that they get things quickly. Um, so handing them, not just showing them components, but handing it to them, um, doing examples and everything, all this just takes extra time. So um, allocating extra time for teaching when you're teaching elderly people. Um, and if you've got younger gamers at the table who are used to being taught games at speed, particularly if they're ready for, I'll learn as I go, um, you do get some conflict that can happen there. But as if you can drive it and then set expectations before you go, most of the time it works. You've also mentioned about this in the process part. Uh, could you like state a couple of problems that are the most common so I would say the biggest problem that we struggle with is actual manual dexterity drop. So um, as people get older, they get slower. Um, you, know, you see pe older people, they just walk slower. Their hands get less dexterous. They um, are just slower to move overall. Um, and a lot of people just assume that that means that they think slower, but they don't. I mean, some of them do, of course, but the overall, they <laughs> they are pretty you know, on the ball most of the time. But because they move slower, um, everything gets harder. So um, just m maintaining the board state can be quite tricky. So often when I'm playing, again, I'm using my parents as an example because I play with them twice a week. So I've got hundreds of examples of that. Um, I will be the person in charge of maintaining the board because it just speeds everything up. Um, but 
one of the discussions I've had with a lot of gamers is, oh, their dexterity is down, so you just don't play dexterity games with them. But there's, that's actually not quite right. So do you know the game Crokinole? Uh, yes. Yeah. So Crokinole is, I would say, a pure dexterity game. They actually quite like Crokinole, even though they have problems with dexterity, because they it's a simple dexterity game. They put pieces on, shoot them. <laughs> they may not be very good at it, but they enjoy the game. Do you know the game Ticket to Ride? Yes. Right. They can't play Ticket to Ride. It is completely beyond them because they don't have the dexterity to play it. The, the mm. ability to hold a handful of cards and the ability to put little trains into an exact position on the board is just beyond them. They can't hop, pick up and then handle a hand of 20 cards. They just can't do it. It's too painful for them. And the ability to pick up and then place six trains accurately on the board without dropping one of them is just not going to happen. Um, so you don't think of Ticket to Ride as a dexterity game. You do think of Crokinole as a dexterity game. But Ticket to Ride is just unaccessible to them because of the dexterity requirements, but Crokinole is fine. Those issues are things that come into play. Um, one of their favourite games is Istanbul. When we play Istanbul, I manipulate the whole board for them. I'm the one who moves their pieces. I'm the one who gives them their money. I'm the one who um, gives them the tiles and everything that they get. They maintain their little player board, but apart from that, I do the entire board state because there's too many little, too many little fiddly pieces. And if mm -hmm. they drop, if they drop them, then the board is just, you know, all over the place. Um, but that's okay. We, we deal with that. That's just the way it goes. So that's probably the most common problem, um, that we deal with. That was a very interesting thing. Like, I mean, I wouldn't expect to have dexterity as the one of the most common problem. And then for them being able to play a dexterity game and not something like Ticket to Ride, which is not classified as a dexterity game, but it requires some dexterity to play. Do you think uh, rule books are accessible to, to the elderly? Have you ever had someone come up to you and say that, He's trying to learn a game game by himself or let's say herself, and they're just struggling with the rule book. Do you think uh, the rule books, the instruction manuals are written in a way that is easier to understand for someone that's older? I would say most of them are okay, but not great. Um, and then there are quite a few that are awful. Um, there are certain things that are helpful, and then there are many that are just terrible. So anything with bad contrast, um, and I imagine this is something similar to what you encounter. So if they're not black on white, they are going to be terrible. So when you get things that have got red text on black or yellow on white, um, they are almost always bad. When you get the big unwieldy rule books that have been shaped the size of the box, particularly in an oversized box, they are bad. Um, when the rule books are glossy, um, that is almost always a problem for them um, because they're hard to handle um, and often when they're positioning light to make it to make them easier to read, all they get is glare. They're just awful. Um, it's just horrible. And 
then you go, okay, we'll just load a PDF of the rule book up, and quite often the PDFs are, are badly designed so that you yeah. can't do any of that. But beyond all of that, which are similar to problems I'm sure you've mentioned in other episodes, the number one problem that we encounter in rule books is not having a good component list. And this goes back to the dexterity issue. The biggest problem we have when they're playing is they're helping set up or they're helping pack up or they're moving their bits around and they drop something and it falls on the floor. And this will happen, I would say, 50% of games that we play, if not higher. So a, p a piece gets dropped, a card gets dropped. And we're wanting to confirm, what are the bits that we should have? And there's no good component list. If there's no good component list, they start worrying that we've lost something. And if you can't just go to your rule book and open it up and therefore say, we need to have this many of this component and do a quick count, it's almost useless. Um... Yeah, that's horrible, and it's just it causes them panic because all of a sudden they've got no easy access to a component list, and when you've got people who drop things, that that's just awful. And I've had discussions with um, publishers via Kickstarter or on Board Game Geek saying how you know put it, you're putting a component list in, and they're saying oh there'll be a thing on the bottom of the box, and it's like well that's not helping if we're packing something up and someone's dropped something on the floor, and they say yeah tough. <laughs> no, <laughs> help these people. Right, yeah, and it is not just the old, like, it's also for us, I mean, <laughs> the young people, I, I always get confused, like, uh, I've had experience with that myself, so yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Before moving to visual accessibility, and that's, our podcast is all about visual accessibility, if I was an old man who has never played board games before, and I was interested in finding more about modern board games. What game would you recommend to be my first game? Honestly, um, I would probably start if... Um, I would ask a couple of questions first um, based on when you haven't played a modern board game before, have you played any board game before? Um, have you played dominoes or anything like that? And then I'd ask a couple of questions around, you know, do you have problems with your hands? Do you have problems with color blindness? Um, you know, do you have problems with your vision you know, and everything like that? Because the game that I've had the most success with, with introducing old gamers to board games is Quirkle. Um, I don't know if that's a game that you're aware of. I, I have seen it, but haven't played it myself. Yeah, so it's a bit like Dominoes, a bit like Scrabble. Um, it's a bunch of tiles with coloured shapes on them, and you are trying to make sets of shapes, um, and you score points on it. Um, I won't go into the rules, people can look it up, but it's... Very, very, the rules are simple, but it's complex enough. It's got some tactical play, a little bit of strategic play when you get to know it a bit better, but it's very, very accessible. Um, I use um, tile stands for putting the tiles on so they don't have to um, have them uh, just balanced on the table and it makes it easier for them to lay them out. Uh, I use Mahjong tile stands and it's just almost always a success. Um, I don't use the travel edition because the tiles are too small and make it hard to see and manipulate. I've got a full-size version of Quirkle, but that's always been a big success. Um, if I'm looking at a tile placement game or a, a, t a tile building game, I've had a lot of success with Lanterns, um, the Harvest Festival. Yeah. And then 
there's a lot of other games that I've um, had success with as well. So games like Guillotine um, or Guillotine, depending on your pronunciation. Um, Love Letter I've had success with. Um, Fuji Flush, which is a fairly new, it's about two years old, um, little card game, has worked well in larger groups with some older gamers. Um, So if there's a, a group of four or five new gamers, that's a really good one to keep the whole group involved. And Moving into worker placement, um, Stone Age has been really good as well. That's a, a good intro worker placement game. Um, a little bit fiddly, but not too fiddly for most of them. The next games that I've often used is if they're interested in co-ops, I've used Flashpoint before because everyone gets the concept. And for a game that they seem to really understand the theme of is Flamme Rouge. Flashpoint has also a very good theme, like the firefighters theme. And I've had my eyes on that game. I couldn't decide between Pandemic and Flashpoint. Uh, Burgle Brothers is also in that list. I own all three. I'm a huge cooperative game fan. Um, Pandemic is probably my second favorite game of all time. But for um, getting people in, I think Flashpoint is a better introductory co-op. The introductory game of Flashpoint, um, this is a different thing, but the introductory game of Flashpoint, to my mind, is just easier to understand. People get the theme um, and the... It's less fiddly and it's less prone to quarterbacking for several reasons. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a good game. Well, one of our previous games, I talked about Pandemic. I covered that topic. And one of the interesting things about games that can be quarterbacked is that they can be accessible for the accessible to the blind. Because most of the information is public. And as long as... The other people can announce or read some of the stuff that the blind player requires. That game can be fully played by someone who is blind, as long as they don't make the decisions for the blind player. So that was a big saving thing for our group. Um, Pandemic is, as I said, our, one of my parents and my favorite games, and we played all the way through both Pandemic legacies. Um, earlier this year, my father had cataract surgery. He is legally blind in one eye and has been his whole life, and he, was, had, he had cataracts getting worse in his other eye. And they didn't want to do the surgery because if – anything went wrong and there's a slim chance something will go wrong because he is fully blind in one eye that would mean he loses all of his vision permanently so they were waiting until his vision was very very bad before they would do the surgery normally they will um, do it because if something goes wrong with one eye there's always the other eye Um, and he didn't have that so we played pandemic legacy both of them while he was basically fully blind. He had 5% vision in one eye and was below 50 in the other. And near the end of season two, he was at, I think, 25% in his good eye. Um, So, and that's the way we did it. Um, He would take time. He would slowly look around the board. We would narrate everything. We would read things out for him. We would make sure that um, all of the information was available. Yeah. Yeah, And well, with Pandemic, it's interesting that the more you play it, and if you have some kind of knowledge in geography, like uh, spatial awareness of where the cities are located, you the more you play it, the more you memorize how many moves you need 
to get from one place to another and it's it's interesting like that i really i really enjoy pandemic unfortunately my group is not into co-op games so i can't play it as much as i would like to and uh because of that reason i haven't purchased legacy season one yet because i don't have a group that will commit the time to play it fully from start to end and yeah i hope i can find someone soon that is interested in co-op games and give that a shot would really like to play that game i wish you luck it's one of the best gaming experiences i've ever had you mentioned that poor eyesight is a very common problem starting with your dad and how you were dealing with uh would you have any guidelines when teaching someone who has vision impairments like anything special to pay attention to so what i would um do and the main experience i've had i have with this i have to admit has been with my father um has been while i would be teaching i would hand him cards and i would hand him components to make sure that he was both visually and tactilely aware of the components um so that he was uh, aware of all of those um i would make sure the area was well lit um so not just you know the one light from above but try and get some lights from the side and if need be you know give him um a, a personal lamp or, or something like that Removing distraction, um, as I, I think I mentioned before, is a big one. Um, just get rid of phones, get rid of background noise, um, and on all of that sort of stuff as much as possible, um, because that's just a killer. Um, the minute there is, you know, a lot of movement in their peripheral vision or, or any of that sort of stuff, it would, he could see that there was movement there, but he couldn't tell what it was. So he'd have to stop and, and look and see what it was, which would change his, what he was paying attention to it and it'd slow everything down. Um, which of course goes back to the, the big guideline is patience take the extra time when you're teaching or playing narrate your turns um i think you, oh, you've mentioned this before i'm sure you have in fact narrate your turns say what you are doing and even better be clear when your turn is done and then when it is about to be that person's turn if there is an important board state mention what that is so um, using, I don't know, something like lanterns as an example, if they're able to make a dedication, um, tell them what the dedication tile that they could possibly pick up is worth um, so that they don't have to stop, figure out where they are on the table and then look at the values or anything like that. Just tell them if they are possibly wanting to do an exchange, tell them what lantern cards are available. That's information that they could get for themselves. So just t tell them, mm -hmm. don't hide anything from them. Um, the number of gamers who seem to be very, very possessive of open information, um, okay, that's a strategic play, but when you're playing with someone with vision impairment, uh, I don't understand why they would want to do that. So narrating board state, narrating your turns and being very, very clear when, if, particularly if you're the person before them, when your turn is over, critical. They're, they're the big ones, I think, for the specifically that we do to deal with the vision impairment. Um, oh, and making sure that um, the position of things on the table is suitable. So 
positioning the board so that the hard-to-access information is closer to them. So maybe the board is turned to face them or if there is a mini board that even if you know it's, it should be on the left of the board, you put it closer to them or, or things like that. So um, the information that they need to know is positioned in a way that is better for them. Um, you know, if, for example, if we're setting up Yokohama, we might put some of the, um, the scoreboard closer to them or the church boards near them, even if it's not the way it's supposed to be set up on the table. It's much more important than that everyone is on an even footing and we're following the setup rules in the rule book by layout. And do you use any special tools? Uh, well, you mentioned lights. Do you use any magnifiers? Or I'm guessing you have you ever tried using, let's say, smartphone apps? Like one of the common things that I've seen some visually impaired people do is take a picture, let's say, of the board state or take a picture of some of the cards laid out so they can zoom in on their phone. I'm guessing you... The, well, the older generation wouldn't be very happy to fiddle with phones. On how's your experience with that? Technological solutions to problems um, tend not to be good ones. Um, so, having smartphone apps or um, computer-based apps to, um, to board gaming issues, I don't think is something that would ever work. Um, I remember. Um, I think it was one of your blog posts I, I read on it, and there's been other things about um, some board games, uh, like some things like the Gloomhaven app, not that I've played Gloomhaven with them, but um, it brought up a discussion of would you use a, an app for um, a board game assistant, and they struggle with technology enough, they wouldn't want to add it to this. They would much prefer to come up with other solutions. Um, so I don't think that those same tools are, are usable. Sure, there'd be some elderly players who would be very comfortable using technological solutions, yeah. but I think in general that it's it's less of a uh, an approachable solution. For vision accessibility, I think, yes, as you said, magnifiers, desk lights, um, um, just a simple set of reading glasses. Um, so they've just got like a 1.5 magnification they've found helps a lot. Um, mostly these are, um, there are more generic elderly things rather than just um, visual accessibility. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, things like syllable straw cups. Um, absolutely. When you've got someone with dexterity issues, every drink at the table, whether it's theirs or not, goes into a sealable cup with a straw. I don't know if you've seen them, um, because I would say, again, one game in three, a cup gets knocked over. Um, I've never had anything damage a board game thing because we always use sealable straw cups, card holders, um, or the tile stands I mentioned before. Um, I use um, metal coins. I actually use Ukrainian currency for my to replace cardboard currency because it's easier for them to see and it's easier for them to move around. So getting a set of metal coins that I use to replace, they can actually handle them better. Um, and another one that I found is we just get small little food containers and all of the tokens and components and bits go in those small tubs. So if you need to move anything around or if they're wanting to count anything or, or get, uh, uh, be able to quickly say, Oh, hang on. I need to figure out, you know, 
or I need to grab some of those. They can pick up a whole tub and move and then count out of a tub close to themselves much easier than they can do that. Um, and that allows for both a vision and a dexterity thing because if they need to get a count of something, as I said, they can just pick up that whole tub and bring it close to themselves rather than having to sort of focus on something on the other side of the table. So having all of the bits and all of the cards or all of the decks in little tubs that they can grab and move around very easily so that the entire board can, uh, or everything on the table can move around very simply, huge advantage. Have you ever tried marking cards in a way because... Uh, I'm I'm guessing uh, older people don't know Braille if they are gradually losing their sight. So you can just buy a Braille accessibility kit, let's say. Or do you just not recommend games with hidden information? Hidden information games are a problem and it's not because of the visual accessibility. It's because one of the issues that um, most of the elderly gamers that I've played with have are short-term memory issues. So... Um, Games like Hanabi um, are a prime example where people will give you information about a hand of cards that they can see but you can't and you have to remember it. Um, Hanabi was an absolute disaster because while you would give them information about their, their hand, by the time it got around to them again, they couldn't remember the information you'd given them in enough detail to be able to process it. Um, so while they have visual clues to what's going on and they can build a, and it doesn't always have to be visual, as I said, because of the thing, but while they've got an overall table state with which to remember or they can do things to, to build their own memory, it was a very, I had a discussion with my parents about the discussion we were having tonight and they couldn't exactly lock down what it was but while they had an entire table in front of them they could build a, a mental picture of what was going on so they could remember what was going on and even then they'd still occasionally lose concentration but in a game like Hanabi where they literally had just the back of five cards in front of them they couldn't focus enough. They couldn't build that mental picture to, to know what was going on. So hidden information games, it's not the visual problem that's mostly the issue. It's the, the mental issues that older gamers tend to have more and more. And again, it's not all of all older gamers. It, it, it is only some, but they are more common with older gamers. Yeah, I see. So our listeners are a younger demographic, but they might have a parent or a grandparent who is visually impaired and they would like to play something with them. I've recommended No Thanks before. There was a Reddit thread about a guy asking to play something with his blind father, something that wasn't too complicated. And I recommended No Thanks as it being simple, no hidden information. And other game recommendations are usually co-ops that have open information. I'm guessing like something like Forbidden Island as being simpler. Would you have any recommendations for someone who's old and visually impaired besides the standard gateway, no hidden information kind of thing? Back to the list I made earlier, I think. Um, so it would depend on the level of vision impairment. Um, if uh, 
it is a tricky one. Um, as I said, if they've got some vision and they've got no issues with color, I would recommend Quirkle. Um, no thanks could work if you could give them an opaque tub to keep the chips in. I would say most older gamers would probably have problems holding a hand of chips. Um, that, that would be a real problem. Co-ops, as you said, are great. Um, Forbidden Island or Flashpoint would be good, um, if you could share the board state with them. Um, Lanterns, as I mentioned earlier, has been a huge success for me. There can be color issues, um, and they've got a, a hidden set of tiles, but they're only holding three, so that's normally manageable. It's not as if they're getting a handful of them, but again, they've got to be able to see the colors on the table, and they've got to be able to distinguish those. So, it does depend on if they're fully blind, I, I have, I've not really dealt with that beyond the full co-op issue or taking the extra time. So it's very hard for me to, to make a recommendation beyond the ones I already have. Um, I think I'd focus on things like games with larger pieces that are easier to manage. So don't involve shuffling a lot of cards. Deck builders can be a problem with people with you know, arthritis or shaky hands. Um, don't involve those dexterous placements like Ticket to Ride. Um, don't involve a lot of memory, which we've already discussed. Um, social deduction and social deception games are often a failure. Though with the right people, they can really work. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky. Um I think the list I, I made above, I gave above. So things like your your Fuji flushes and that, um, yeah. So before we started recording, well, this was a few weeks ago. You mentioned that you attended several conventions over the years, and I believe the most recent one was PAX in November. I've attended one since then, but yes. Oh. Awesome. So I was going to ask you, uh, are there many elders visiting those conventions? Have you had anyone to teach at those conventions or ask you for some help? Do you have any stories from such conventions? So there was a story from PAX. Um, there was a gentleman who approached me. Um, so I was a what's called a tabletop volunteer at PAX Oz this year, um, who are a group of people who hang around in – there's a large games library. We hang around in the library to make suggestions to people and make ourselves available to teach the games that we know to people who are wanting to learn more about board gaming. I had someone approach me wanting to learn how to play Stone Age, and he mentioned that he had been trying to get his father into board gaming. His father was, I believe, in his late 70s. Um, and he'd had trouble teaching his father board games. Um, he, um, he, English wasn't his father's first language. I only speak English. Um, and it had been a real challenge for him. And I said, I am quite experienced at teaching old people games. I am prepared to do this. It was made, it was made tricky by the fact that someone else joined in and that person was a younger gamer who was familiar with Stone Age and just wanted to get started. So I went into my quite, my slowed down explanation, making sure that the older gamer was understanding the concepts and the other guy was, Oh yeah, this is simple. We just do this and moving on and trying to keep interrupting. Um, but I kept slowing him down saying, listen, I need to make sure that this gentleman gets it. If you need to go for a walk and come back in five minutes or 10 minutes or go find another game, that's fine. But I need to make sure that this gentleman's got it. We took about 15 or 20 minutes to teach Stone Age, which is a little bit longer than normal, which is fine. And then we played and I kept offering him assistance through and helping him out and everything. I was focusing much more on teaching him than I was on playing myself. Um, and uh, at the end of it, 
um, about an hour later, the, the young guy came up and said this was the first time his father had actually said that he got the game all the way through. He, uh, he didn't do great because he never really gotten into the style of game before, but he understood what he needed to do. He understood how all the mechanics worked, and he actually, at the end of the game, turned around to his son and said, can we please buy this? Oh, nice. Um, and they wanted to, he wanted to play more of it. So that taking the extra time and, and sort of using that experience, I think, was just a huge success story. And the kid was wrapped. Um, he, he was just so happy that he'd found someone who was able to you know, explain to his father, even though I had this huge language barrier as well, um, to, to make that work. And if it wasn't for the, I mean, the other guy was, I understand where he was coming from. He just wanted to sit down and play Stone Age. But, uh, yeah, that, that was an interesting and stressful experience in a room full of, you know, four and a half thousand people. Um, cause PAX is a very large convention with a lot of video games and everything. That was a, that was a morning. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I got, I got the father wanting to play more and that, that's the success story. Yeah. Do you see older people at those conventions? It depends on what you classify as older gamers. There's a lot of people in their 50s. In Australia, which is the only experience I've got, there's a lot of people in their 50s, of course, um, because they're the ones who you know, I've been gaming with for 30 or 40 years have just continued gaming. So yeah. the people I saw at conventions back in the 80s are still at conventions now in you know, 2018. Um there's a few people I would say now are in their early 70s. And again, it's a lot of the same people who I saw at conventions back in the 80s. Um, the late 70 and the early 80-year-olds, you don't see a lot of. Um, so they are quite rare. Um, though we do do regular board game meetups in Melbourne. And... Um, We've, we uh, have a, a groups that run at libraries, and quite often um, there's a group of old ladies who saw this thing and they come along and say, we play Mahjong every week, and they've started coming along and they'd never played anything like modern board games before, and they started coming along about four or five months ago. And now they turn up every month and want to see what these new games are. So we started playing Ink and Gold with them, and then we introduced them to a couple of other things. I haven't been able to go to that meetup for a few months, but um, some of our friends have been introducing them to new games, and Stone Age, I know, was one of them, um, and just playing games with them and introducing them to new things. And, you know, we're not just making them welcome and, and letting them sort of pick the level that they want to advance at. And it, it's just fun. So slowly but surely, we're seeing older gamers. A lot of it is just, you know, gamers who've been in the scene for a long time getting older. But sometimes we are seeing um, new old blood coming. <laughs> yeah. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything you'd like to ask me? I think the big thing is if anyone has got older family members that they want to, who have expressed interest in um, board gaming or what, if you're a younger gamer and you've got, you know, grandparents or parents who have said, you know, so what is this about? Give it a try. Um, the biggest thing you can do is be patient. Be prepared to spend more time than you normally would um, teaching younger people. And don't Go in expecting them to um, play your your heavy war games or your heavy Euro games or your heavy thematic games. Um, 
straight off the bat. Um, find something that's appropriate. Um, a good introductory game that isn't going to be information overload. Something a little bit gentler. Not just gateway games, but things that, as I mentioned earlier, don't have the two large pieces, don't involve shuffling a lot of cards. What we consider to be a gateway game doesn't necessarily mean gateway to them. Um, it's um, it's a, and as I said, I, I made the list above your your quirkles. Fuji yeah. Flush is shuffling, but off, but not in the same way. It's often it's just shuffling at the start, um, and make the experience more about spending time with them more than it is about playing the game with them. So m- not social deduction games, but make the game more a social experience. If it's all about playing the game rather than about spending time with them, it's probably not going to work the way you expect it to. But if you can make incorporate the game into spending time with them, you'll find that I found that that's when they get much more into gaming and it will over time evolve. Right. In case some of our listeners would like to contact you, is there any way they can reach you via email or social media that we can also post in the show notes? Sure. Um, I can be reached via email on richard at elindal.net. That's E-L-I-N-D-A-L.net. Um, although the best way to reach me is probably via my board game geek handle, which is Bremick, B-R-E-M-I-C. Mr. Richard Kenning, thank you very much for spending your evening with me. It's a Friday and I hope you have a great weekend. It was a pleasure having you on the show. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for um, giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Yeah, this was a very informative conversation for me and I believe it will be for our listeners. I hope uh, you made some of them try a game with their parents or perhaps grandparents. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you have any questions for me, you can contact us via email at sightlessfun at outlook.com or you can also reach us via Twitter at sightlessfun. You can also check out our website at www.sightless.fun. Thank you very much for listening and remember, you can still have fun while being sightless. This episode was hosted by Ertan Shashko and edited by Alpai Shashko. We'd also like to extend our special thanks to Fighting Windmills for allowing us to use their music in our podcast. You can find them at fightingwindmillsmk.bandcamp.com. <laughs>